I'm J.R. Woodward. Welcome to our social landscape. My home state of Florida is one of many states, mostly led by Republican governors, legislatures, or both, that has passed legislation negatively targeting the transgender community. Despite his comments in his 2018 gubernatorial race that, quote, getting into bathroom wars, I don't think that's a good use of our time, end quote, Governor Ron DeSantis has actively done just that. In the past legislative session, Florida's legislature passed and DeSantis signed laws that prohibit transgender children from receiving gender-affirming treatments, including prescriptions that block puberty hormones or sex reassignment surgeries. Under the law, a court could intervene to temporarily remove a child from their home if they receive gender-affirming treatments or procedures, and it treats such health care options, which are supported by the American Medical Association, the same as it would a case of child abuse. According to the Human Rights Campaign, so far in 2023, there have been more than 525 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced in 41 states, with 80 bills specifically aimed at preventing transgender youth from playing school sports consistent with their gender identity, and 42 bills proposed to prevent transgender and non-binary youth from receiving life-saving, medically necessary gender-affirming health care. Multiple states, including Florida, now restrict access to gender-affirming care overall. As I record this, minors cannot receive any gender-affirming health care in Florida. This started with the Florida Board of Medicine guidelines of practice before it became law. As an aside, the Florida Board of Medicine comprises 14 people, all of whom were appointed by Governor DeSantis and eight of whom had contributed financially to his election campaign. The guidelines say that transgender youth under 18 should not be treated with puberty blockers or hormone therapy. This contradicts the global medical consensus as reflected in the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Standards of Care, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the Pediatric Endocrinology Society. The national attack on the transgender community is at indeed at a fevered pitch these days. A few months ago in an article in the New York Times titled How a Campaign Against Transgender Rights Mobilized Conservatives, the author suggested that after the Supreme Court case to legalize same-sex marriage in 2015, Conservatives were left searching for a port in the storm for an issue they could rally around, feeling that the same-sex marriage issue had been lost. This is only intensified after the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, as conservatives feel emboldened by the court's move to the right. And transgender folks have made for an easy target, seeing as they are a small and historically marginalized population. Charles Blow states, It's in this atmosphere of unfamiliarity and ignorance about who trans people are and are not that hysteria and cruelty flourish. The maleficent caricature that people can conjure in their minds about trans people is one of a predator or groomer lurking in bathrooms and locker rooms. And sadly, earlier this year, for the first time in its more than 40-year history, the Human Rights Campaign declared a state of emergency for LGBTQ people in the United States. Such is the world we find ourselves in. With this as a backdrop, I reached out to some experts in this area, which led me to my current guest, pediatric endocrinologist Hussein Abdul-Latif. Dr. Abdul Latif is Professor of Pediatrics and Pediatric Endocrinology, as well as the co-director of the Pediatric Clerkship at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He began seeing children with gender dysphoria back in 2008 and established a multidisciplinary clinic for this purpose in 2016. He's treated hundreds of such children over the past 15 years. If you don't mind, maybe just how did you get into this particular practice, what you know, medicine itself, but then also pediatric uh, endocrinology? What brought you to this spot at UAB? Oh yeah, wow, that's a long that that takes a long time, <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll go. Um, so um, I do remember when I was a um, high school student, my father 
came to my room as I was studying and he said, what do you want to do for a living when you grow up? And I said, I want to be an archaeologist, a historian, geographer. Um, yeah, so kind of he was going to have a heart attack, um, <laughs> but, but he kept his calm and he said, well, those are really good hobbies to have, but you will not earn enough money. Mm -hmm. uh, so think again. So I disappeared for a week, came back. Um, what did you decide to do? And I said, I wanted to study medicine. He actually did not like that decision, but... Oh. Huh. Um, but my mother and her mother um, behind his back supported that decision. And I ended up studying medicine, went into pediatrics because uh, although my father was a pediatrician, um, I felt a connection with the kids. I loved the communication with them. And, and that was something that I enjoyed. And then um, I joined pediatric endocrinology because I went to the diabetes camp when I was in residency. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was a very eye-opening experience because I was in a cabin with all the kids that have diabetes. Most of the counselors had diabetes. And many of the clinical staff, whether nurses or doctors or nutritionists, also had diabetes. So I was a minority. I was aware of my status as a minority uh, with as a non-diabetes, as a person not living with diabetes, mm -hmm. uh, in a group that is actually a minority. And, and so I wanted to belong so much, I wanted to have diabetes um, <laughs> for a minute. Um, yeah. When I realized that's not something you want to have, um, you know, unless you end up having it, yeah. then I said, well, I, I will work with them. And, and that was kind of my introduction to endocrinology. And then a good number of years later, um, one of my partners at work um, had a patient who came out to her as a trans female. And she felt that I may be a better uh, person to take care of that child uh, because uh, I am gay myself. So kind of like she reached out to the LGBTQ right. member of her team that right. maybe I am a, a fit for this kid. And, and so right. they came. Um, with the mother and the child and lots of documents about uh, guidelines for managing uh, kids who are transgender. And we went through them, studied them together, worked together, started the uh, kids on puberty blockers at the time, and then eventually on hormone therapy. And now she's a well-grown adult um, who lives not in the state of Alabama, but in another um, repressive state um, mm -hmm. uh, related to uh, trans kids, um, but happily living her life and, and living her truth. Um, and, and that was the beginning of that journey um, that through word of mouth, other kids in the state of Alabama started coming and then uh, the numbers grew and grew and grew um, and kind of became more of a dedicated clinic not all the time, but uh, twice a month where I take care of kids who have um, issues related okay. to gender uh, of some sort or another. All right. So if you don't mind, maybe I thought we would start with just some, maybe ask you to define some terms that are probably very basic to you, but maybe uh, to people walking down the street. Yeah. Kind of a high school biology level kind of discussion. Can we start with gender affirming care? What does it typically mean medically when people say that? Yeah. Uh, so gender affirming care, um, to me, uh, I would say like I would define it the way I define it to other people is 
being a supportive person who is understanding, open-minded, and taking care of kids who identify as having gender dysphoria or who are trans males or trans females or non-binary. So gender-affirming care is not necessarily about giving medications and treatments. It's mm-hmm. about a, um, a philosophy, a humbleness, a uh, openness to hearing the words that come from the child and that comes from their parents. Mm-hmm. And certainly would include uh, with it a potential for treatment, including mm-hmm. um helping them with puberty blockers, hormone therapy that affirm the gender that they identify with, uh, or um, dealing with other issues related to gender dysphoria, as in like, how can I help you with anxiety about your chest, uh, or anxiety about having menstrual cycles, or um, uh, all forms of other uh, issues that they may be dealing with, including social and psychological stressors that they are living with. Okay, thank you. And and you brought up one or two. I was going to ask puberty blockers. What is the when are they typically given, and what is there? It sounds just pretty obvious, but no, it's uh, the idea about puberty blockers is for kids who come with gender dysphoria before the onset of puberty. Um, many of them are uh, terrified of puberty when it happens because they do feel that puberty. Uh, is something that will change them into a body that they did not want to have or they did not uh, identify with. Mm-hmm. And so um, so when puberty starts, um, and so we never start puberty blockers before puberty starts. It's when okay. puberty actually had started, then we can put a stop to it. And it serves um, mainly two functions. One of them uh, gives them more time to think where they are not stressed by the changes in their body, whether um, the gender identity they identifies with they identify with is something they want to continue with, or do they want to go back, uh, what we call desist or return to the gender they were assigned at birth. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a time that's neutral because puberty blockers do not make your body change in one way or another. They put a hold on it. Okay. Uh, and if they are eventually in a few years want to continue the journey of the gender that they identify with, then we have more years where they are uh, insisting on con- being consistent with that gender identity. And then we can start them on the hormone therapy that affirms that gender. And that could also include transition surgery at some point? Well, we in pediatrics, we don't do transition surgery. Right. Uh, and, and certainly you don't want to do transition surgery until years have passed on uh, hormones affirming the gender, uh, mm-hmm. because that would be too early to do that kind of surgery, medically speaking. But also in pediatrics, we feel uh, that may be a little bit too much of an intervention that should wait until late teenage years or early adulthood. That makes sense. Okay, thank you. The main reason I, I reached out was to hear your thoughts on the the rash of legislation nationwide aimed at limiting gender affirming treatments for trans youth and in some states adults as well. Uh, you might have read the New York Times op ed piece by Megan Tolley and um, Christina Jewett called "They Pause Puberty, but is there a cost?" Did you read that? Familiar yeah, with that? Yeah, I, I did read that. Yeah, she she's a celebrated journalist, but that piece got slammed by many activists in the trans community as a fear mongering. You know, saying they're guilty of ignoring much of the evidence, medical evidence. 
And, yeah. and the, the main reason, the stated reason, at least a lot of these legislators propose the bills is they call gender affirming care experimental and harmful. One Florida legislator even called it child abuse. So where do you situate yourself in this in this debate or discussion about the the, the health yeah. of these procedures? So, uh, you know, the New York Times wrote several articles and, and um, one of them kind of did uh, cite the benefits of using uh, puberty blockers and they also cite potential issues related to potential harm. And um, in, I think, a very long article by the New York Times, um, not an op-ed, um, where they kind of, I think they, they looked at three scenarios or three kids that were started on puberty blockers. The, the main um, the main area of that article was the potential for uh, puberty blockers on bone health in children. And the idea about it is that the puberty hormones, um, estrogen and testosterone, are important hormones for our bone health and for building our bones. And the thought that if you're um, uh, delaying puberty by a good number of years, then are you um, depriving the bones of a few years of hormone uh, influence on them to build up uh, uh, that that bone density, what we call mm-hmm. The, they cited some articles, medical articles related to this, but all of those articles were um, a smaller number of people. And therefore, um, although they do come to some conclusions, they, the main conclusion they come, we need more studies. Um, gotcha. and, and in those studies that they showed up, um, they showed that for trans males, um, um, the although they are... Um, suffering during the receiving of the puberty blockers, once they go back on the hormone therapy that affirms their gender, that removes the deficit that may, they may have when compared to other peer. Um, mm-hmm. But when they compared the, the trans females, um, then they, they showed uh, or they suggested that there are some issues related to bone health, um, but in small studies at this point. So, so nothing is completely conclusive. And, and there are some problems with the studies that were, uh, that were looked at. And one of them is, um, uh, is that our, um, when, when they were look, what they were looking at is something called bone density studies. Mm-hmm. And they were comparing the bone density studies with people of the same age. Uh, as those kids, but when we're using puberty blockers, they are not at the same age for their bones. Their bones look much younger than than people of the same age as they are in number of years. So that comparison is inappropriate because mm-hmm. it's uh, you, you're comparing not cohorts that are comparable. Right. And in in the trans females especially. Um, they are comparing data with male bodies and comparing their data with male bodies, but they are hormonally, when they become adults, they are not hormonally male, they're hormonally female. And so uh, that, um, I did not see evidence that that was taken in consideration. And so there are some issues with those studies where when one is talking to them and limitations to them, um, it is a legitimate question to ask about like eventually the effect on bone health. Um, there is a big study that is, um, I believe, still ongoing, and it is NIH supported by big four programs on the two coasts of the United States, 
looking at that issue, and they have not yet published their data. So uh, we are waiting for that kind of study to come in order to give us a deeper uh, understanding of what's going on. Um, so, so that's, um, I would say this is the most um, meaningful criticism, uh, if, if you will, related to uh, use of puberty blockers. Other things that they talk about oftentimes, but there is no evidence of it, is like, is the use of puberty blockers something that can affect their mental health or their um, their mental maturation and, and all of those kinds of things? And they cite mostly related to this animal studies that say um, exposure to uh, puberty hormones um, affects, you know, certain things about our uh, personality or whatever that, that we yeah. go. Um, citing animal studies and, and kind of superimposing them to humans is not necessarily the best evidence for something. Right. Right. The, there are parallels between humans and animals, but animals enter puberty at a much earlier age than humans do. So, so that we have a different brain and a different uh, requirement of the brain when it gets exposed to to puberty hormones. And eventually people who are transgender will be exposed to the puberty hormones, but at a later age related to the, this kind of thing. So um, in the state of Florida, um, they cited articles that showed some side effects related to puberty blockers. And interestingly, the articles that they cited was an article related to use of puberty blockers not being fought by legislatures uh, when we're using it to stop puberty that starts early in children mm -hmm. and looking at the potential side effects of the puberty blockers in that category. And, and the article that they actually cited in Florida um, mentioned all of those potential problems, but also mentioned that there's no real evidence that those are really problems. Okay. And that's kind of where you fall at this point. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. I the, the big thing that eventually um, in medicine, what we have to talk about between us and the families and the children is the issue of uh, benefit and risk ratio. Right, right. And um, so it is a case-by-case -case basis. Um, we do understand that whatever medicine we use, there are some side effects potentially that we will have to decide if we accept them or we do not accept them. And But if we also choose not to make a, a decision, then there are also side effects to not making a decision. Yeah, and yeah. oftentimes when it comes to issues of a transgender child who is in puberty, the decision is, are we doing more harm by uh, stopping their puberty or are we doing more harm by allowing puberty to continue in a kid who is already very stressed? Yeah, yeah. So mental health comes in pretty strongly yeah. there, I would yes. assume. Yeah. And, and this is a kid that's very vulnerable to mental health issues. Um, they have a very high incidence of suicide, um, and, and we'll have to kind of balance that. Yeah, yeah. This is probably a quick, easy one. But I saw in Missouri, they passed a law saying there's no gender-affirming care for anyone without three years of gender dysphoria documented by a physician. How did, how would you document that just, just through conversations over time as their pediatrician or as their primary care physician? Yeah. I mean, th that would be basically what they're saying, but okay. it's in a sense, um, in a state of Alabama, for example, the kids that we see, um, they have been dealing with it for a good number of years before they come to see us because mm -hmm. 
it's a process for a kid to first come out to their parents and then to uh, come or first come out to themselves, accept who they are, and then come out to their parents. Uh, so it's in a state that is very conservative, like Alabama and I guess yeah. maybe Missouri oh, uh, or Florida, mm-hmm. um, Northern Florida, I guess where you are. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, that's uh, that is a process that takes time, and I think you add uh, more burden is that you need to go see a doctor from the moment that you started thinking of it. But no sure. one does that. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, uh, thank you. The uh, kind of brings me to the debate about how how do we know someone is trans? And I was reading an article just the other day about self identification versus like a medical model. And it matters, say, for insurance, right? If some insurance is going to cover some of this care, but only if a physician says that this person is in fact trans, it seems like how do we, what if the physician comes from a, a particular background or a cultural background or a political background or something that's that's different than the person is saying that is coming from, you know, mm-hmm. how do we balance how we even define, you know, who we let, quote unquote, let. That, yeah. uh, take on that identity for these purposes. Yeah. So, so in pediatrics in general, uh, it is not one physician that makes that that decision. So, for example, what I when I talk to my kids that come to see me related to um, are they having gender dysphoria and are they is it time for them to start medications? You know, whether it is hormone therapy or puberty blockers. And what we are talking about is uh, especially with hormone medi like testosterone and estrogen, is that for me to give them any medication, um, they have to be out uh, as trans for at least a year in a stable uh, gender identity. Okay. So, so that's that's one condition that, that we're giving them. And the other condition is that they uh, need to have a letter sent to me by a psychologist or counselor or, uh, or psychiatrist that... Um, agrees with the definition that they have gender dysphoria and that they are ready to receive medications for it. And the third one is that their parents are in line with those medications. Mm -hmm. uh, So why is it that we do this? Is that, I mean, some of the criticisms that you will hear about is issue of is this a phase, you know, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and kind of like, the, does this phase come and go? And and certainly uh, it is part of growing child um, to question who they are and what their identity is and all that stuff. But this is not something that lasts for a, a year or two or even six months. So, uh, so by asking them to be transitioned, making, make that bold decision that I am this gender and coming out to some people, at least their friends, close friends, or to their parents, mm-hmm. saying that this is me, mm-hmm. uh, that takes lots of courage and it takes lots of um, uh, inner thinking in sure. order for sure. them to do it. Sure. Uh, but to persist with it for a year, um, that kind of hits what we call the child who is truly transgender is insistent, consistent, and persistent okay. in that gender identity. Okay. Uh, the psychologist is another level of uh, another eye to look at them and to uh, to look at where they are, w- what, what they would be. And certainly you're bringing up a very important uh, thing. It's uh, It's best to have someone who is not ideologically inclined in one extreme or another. Uh, someone who is open-minded to goes wherever things go rather than to be 
ideologically making up their mind already in this or that direction, in this or that extreme, really. Yeah, that rigidity, I think, would be troublesome, I, I could just yeah. imagine. Yeah. And I don't know how much do you get training on that in, in medical school and things like that. But the, the parents part reminds me, um, how do you how do you balance the, the state's rights and the parents' rights? Some of these laws we're seeing passed now, even with parental consent, they're not allowed to have these procedures. And Many people that are saying the same things, particularly in, in states that have a Republican legislature, freedom of the parents is touted as this really big thing, right? We see it in education a lot. Got to defer to the parents. Got to defer to the parents. But not, I guess, in this case? Yeah. The parents yeah. Not- so that's a contradiction uh, in in Republican uh, frame of mind, um, kind of like the, the, the freedom of the parents to make a decision and to know what's best. Um, not to those parents, because those are parents that are, they do not fit in the Republican um, mm-hmm. frame of mind. Uh, it, and, and, and that's sad because um, the majority of the parents that we see are probably, I mean, I don't ask people about their politics, but um, knowing that the majority of the population of Alabama votes Republican, sure. I would expect that the majority of those parents, at least at some point in their lives, were voting Republican and they were identifying with, with Republican mm-hmm. politics. The reason they come to me is that they are facing a reality that they could not ignore anymore. Okay, mm-hmm. And that's a reality of taking care of a child that is, to them, in danger if, they, if we do not support them and what they are saying, if we do not listen to them. Um. You know what it reminds me of too. We just brought up the um, the federal judge in Texas who overruled the FDA on uh, mm, a fast. Uh, what is the word? Uh, oh, the Mephipreston. Yeah. Mephipreston. Yeah. Um, so you got a federal judge saying this. This the physicians typically the FDA has kind of been the ones who decide these things, and then you have now state legislators saying no. We're, we're, a lot of medical science might be saying this, okay, but we're not going to allow it. Do you think this is a is this a trend? Is this something that are they related at all, or is this just you think coincidental? Yeah, I mean it is uh, definitely something that's starting to uh, appear on the horizon where uh, politicians are starting to interfere in the uh, practice of the medical profession, uh, whether it is gender care, uh, whether it is vaccines, uh, whether it is um, uh, abortion or or access to abortion. Uh, And and, um, it is politicians who are not medically trained, or perhaps some of them may be medically trained, but they're also ideologically uh, stuck with a certain point of view, certain message that they want to reach. And, and, and in medicine, nuance is a very important part of, of, of the management of kids and of adults uh, in medicine. And when it comes to politics and laws where it's a, um, it's a statement that is yes or no, that removes all the nuance in caring for people and it removes that uh, wisdom that we have to have as parents and as physicians in reaching together to a decision makes it an unwise situation where we're moving into black and white, yes or no, and all nuance is lost. Um, When the practice of medicine is a 
is about shades of gray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. This was going to belie my ignorance here, but the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. You, I assume you're familiar yeah, with that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Are you a member of that organization? Is that I am not okay? Because they last just last year came out with the eight iteration of the standards of care for the health of transgender and gender diverse people. And I was wondering, uh, like, is that document, that that standard, is that just something that is not paid attention to? It's something that's controlling? Is it like, you know, what's, how much do people really pay attention to that? Or is that kind of the definitive statement of of the health field in this area? I mean, it, it, it's not a definitive statement, but it is some, certainly something that one would refer to okay. when they want to look at kind of standards of practice and standards of care uh, okay. and all those kinds of things. Um, it, it's an important organization because it um, uh, it involves people who know the field, who had worked in the field for longer periods of time. Perhaps like some of what they may decide uh, may not apply in a conservative state and um, where we have to live with our uh, atmosphere and, and situation mm-hmm. here. Um, and perhaps stronger than their statements would be uh, like the American Academy of Pediatrics, which okay. is a um, our parent organization for pediatricians, and that would give us advice into um, is uh, gender-affirming care something that the American Academy of Pediatrics supports or not? And the American Academy of Pediatrics supports it. Um, yeah. Another one would be like the Pediatric Endocrine Society, okay. and yeah. uh, which is that's kind of my parent organization, yeah. and, and that also supports uh, management and treatment of uh, you know gender affirming care, and, and that's all in con, you know in sync in synchrony with uh the WPATH uh, uh advice except that WPATH may give more details into the management and how to do it whereas those organizations are uh supporting in general uh gender affirming care including medications okay okay thank you um all right just about finished i know you you're a busy uh person oh but... you're good i like those questions okay okay good thank you i don't want to rush you so this is the tough one, though. If you were writing, you were brought in as a consultant to write this legislation or to comment on some of this legislation, uh, what would what would it say? What would you what would be your best practices, hmm. whether or not if you could convince your state legislator to go your direction, where what would you do? I would say um, I would still defer it very much in concert with the general philosophy of their party that they align themselves to is that this is a decision that is best taken by parents and by physicians um, that that are uh, that that are managing those kids. Perhaps you know um, I would be um, generally okay with certain statements by uh, by legislature to say uh, we would like to have maybe two physicians agreeing on on treatment w- mm-hmm, with this, mm-hmm. it, which is I think the case in um, West Virginia perhaps. In, in their most recent one where they said like you need to have two physicians agreeing to treatment and and it's labeled as um as a ban when it's certainly not as a ban that is in Alabama where it says you go to jail if you prescribe right. those kinds of right, things right and, and and so I would have lived better with uh, saying two physicians because uh you know that that's that goes with with more caution with more understanding. Uh, and so on and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. But a blanket um, ban or or a threat to families with taking their kids away from them, as in Florida. Texas, yeah. 
and Florida uh, too. And, and in Florida, yep. or a threat to physicians to go to jail as in Alabama or in other states, uh, that is uh, overreaching, or a threat to take away their medical license, which is in Florida, yep. uh, if they do prescribe those skins, when, when the physician is not committing a crime that is, the, the crime that they would be committing is that they are going with the advice that is supported by their medical organizations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that is... Um, fascinating to me that this kind of thing would make a person lose his license or her license. I think that's how Florida started. It was just the the board of medicine or something in the state was going to, but then we just passed, uh, I don't know if DeSantis has has signed it yet, but just a couple of days ago, I think it was House Bill 1041 or something just passed through our our legislature, and it's talking about taking state taking control of kids, emergency custody of kids, you know, from parents, wow. and like wow. if, the, if the parents are divorced, they it would affect custody. Uh, it's just it's just yeah, it's just unreal that this is. I happening. mean, the, the precedence. I mean, although like I would support certain things, the precedence of having legislatures. Um, interfering in a medical practice when they are not the majority of them, the vast majority of them, when they are not medically trained right. and they are not living in the house of those kids or the mothers, the, the, the women who may be deciding to go for mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, decisions related to her pregnancy and whatever, uh, that precedence is uh, scary. Yes. Because uh, it takes away um, the art of medicine, and medicine is an art, is not a mathematical uh, uh, calculation. Um, so you ready for a bonus question? It's a tough one. Yeah. So there's a, a similar rash of state and federal laws right now going on about uh, trans girls in athletics. So we have uh, states like Florida and many others. The U.S. House of Representatives just recently passed the law. It will not go through. Biden will, will stomp it. Um, and we have, but Biden is talking about changing Title IX to address some of these anti-trans women issues. Um, so what say you about the trans women uh, athletics debate since you follow children from such a young age through puberty? How do you think it affects their sport participation? I mean, it's... Uh... I mean, they're passing laws right and left uh, related to that kind of stuff. And it's um, it, it's very interesting because very few trans women are athletes. Uh, so, so kind of they're making a big story out of very few people in number. Uh, they base it on some interesting data as in like those are people that have more muscle mass perhaps because they are also perhaps taller than, than the other um people who were assigned female at birth and they're competing against them and therefore they would say this is uh, an unfair advantage. Um, They may bring some articles, like I was reading some articles related to that issue as in like someone, and it it doesn't apply to someone who received um, uh, puberty blockers and then received estrogen because That, that person never was uh, exposed to the male hormones. Um, but they are talking about people who were exposed to male hormones, developed muscles of the male in general, and therefore they are receiving female hormones now and suppressing their testosterone. What their articles that they are bringing is that there may be still some muscle mass in them, 
that's a little bit more than um, than people who were assigned female at birth and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but this is looking at only one angle of the what makes an athlete an athlete. Sure. Uh, I mean, I swim and mm-hmm. uh, and I swim next. I'm not a very good swimmer, <laughs> but I swim relatively well. Uh, and I see people with big muscles swimming next to me, and I can beat <laughs> they're them. They're terrible. Yeah, they're terrible. <laughs> so, so that. Yeah. Yeah. So having bigger muscles is not the only decider right, of right. are you a good athlete or, or not a good athlete. Mm-hmm. Maybe the only area where big muscles really, really become the big decider is if you are a, a power, power lifter, power or, lifter something. or something. Yeah, that's kind of like if you mm-hmm. use that kind of argument, and and the you know the articles that they looked at, they looked at like suppression of testosterone for a year or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well. The, but yeah, those are people that will be suppressing their testosterone for a longer period of time. Some of mm-hmm. them, they never had a high testosterone. We're suppressing it to a much lower level than what the articles were looking at. Right. So there's right. much more to criticize of those articles and their conclusions. But okay. the other part, even in those articles that they bring as evidence, those articles acknowledge that um, this kind of thing about muscle mass is not the only decider of who's a good athlete. For sure. But in athleticism, there is the biological thing. For example, someone who's 5'7 competing against someone who's 6'7. Yeah. Well, you know, they still will compete. There's no, ro- there's no law that says 6'7 right. tall people should not compete. And, but they are at a better advantage than right. someone who is shorter. Yeah, it seems uh, it's kind of um, arbitrary. You know, we're drawing the line of these things and with political purpose, I believe, because I think you're right. It's kind of an answer looking for a question. You know, the last year in Utah, the Republican legislature passed a law banning trans girls in athletics, but the Republican governor vetoed it. Yeah. And he said, uh, the science is still not clear and I don't want to make a decision on this yet. At the time, there were 85,000 high school athletes in Utah. Four of them were trans and three were trans men. Mm -hmm. So this is one person. They pass a state law for one person. You know, like it's just ridiculous that they give that much attention to it. But as a sociologist, we look at these things like kind of they're all social constructions in a way. What it means to be athletic is is defined by the culture, the time, the place. It's not the same as it always was. But and even to a degree, and you, you can disagree with this if you like, but even the way we define male female is a contested terrain like if you look at now the ncaa they had you had to have a certain amount of testosterone well now they've changed that level in the old days they used the bar test where they'd swab your cheek other days they just looked at the the person and you know took their clothes off like we've never been able to really define exactly what makes these categories and then we're trying to throw what athletic is in there and it just becomes a big mess and so do we side with inclusion and fairness uh but then other people would say it's not fair to allow these trans women to compete against quote-unquote real women trans women are saying i am a real woman if we're really concerned as you said about these testosterone and muscle why are we allowing shaquille o'neal to play basketball against somebody else he clearly has a genetic advantage you know or michael phelps the swimmer right all this research on him and his max vo2 and all this he's not a regular person but we don't call that unfair you know so it it just it does seem to be really arbitrary where we're drawing these lines well and and the other maybe perhaps a bigger issue is in my mind that we're putting way too much energy into 
sports and the competitiveness of sports rather than the fun of sports. Right, right. And by putting laws like this, we're making it even more competitive and more more like a battleground mm-hmm. rather than an area for kids to have fun and enjoy uh, camaraderie and working together and, and competing uh, against each other in a friendly manner. Yeah, yeah, that's the American model, though, for sure. This competition, competition, competition at all costs. And, you know, it's, it's, it is unfortunate. That's really why I got into this issue to begin with is I have a lot of interest in, I was, I taught sports sociology for a long time. So I have an interest in the transgender athlete, but then it just started to expand as I started to learn more about it. But that's originally my, my interest in this is how, how, what these laws do and how they affect people. So that's it. Uh, that I have written down. Um, so was there anything that I didn't ask that you think might be relevant that I, that you want to bring up or you, did I well, touch on all the bases? I, you know, I think you're, you're, you're good. Like the, there's one thing kind of like going back to issues, articles written by the New York Times. I do subscribe to it. So I read its mm-hmm. articles. Mm-hmm, sure. And um, w- one of the articles that were written by it was, um, and received some attention are like a certain group of, physicians uh, and psychologists and stuff like that that are working with transgender kids and and that were suggesting that perhaps like WPATH or um, those organizations are a little too eager to start on hormone therapy a little earlier than they should be. Perhaps we should wait a little bit. Okay. Uh, All of that kind of stuff. And and that's, that's an interesting discussion because it brings um, it brings fuel to the fire of those legislations. Like, you right. know, right. even some of the experts in that field are, are, uh, kind of doubting what, what is happening. Well, this is a scientifically, this is healthy. It's good to have debate. It's good to have disagreement. It's, it's, um, it's what's called, it's constructive conflict of some sort. Sure. Um, sure. but to take that academic, pure academic, area of difference and translate it into laws um, that actually stops the discussion because now there is a law, it's it's banned, there's no more discussion, mm-hmm. uh, that becomes unhealthy. Uh, and interestingly, the group of physicians and specialists, whether psychologists, uh, adolescent physicians, that are saying, you know, put little breaks, make it slower in, in treatment, they wrote an open letter to all those legislatures saying that you should not ban those medications. Okay, yeah. And I think that would be a very strong statement against those legislation is that even those of us who are on the wait a little bit longer, be a little bit more conservative in your management uh, are against those legislations. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, partially the it, I'm not sure it matters. I don't know. I'm not in their heads, but if their true motivation is really the health of these kids, or if it's just fear of transgender, or just some, you know, it's just a kind of a, a, a I don't know if it's religious or if it's cultural or something. But I don't. It just seems like there has to be more than pure concern about children. <laughs> because we do all kind of crazy shit that we allow with children or don't allow, but this one issue I think is goes deeper than goes deeper yeah. than they yeah. say, you know. But I, I'm not in their head, but it just seems it just can't be that simple. It has to be, yeah, like you said, it goes against a lot of the established literature. So, all right, thanks again. Have a great rest of your day. You too. You take right. care. Okay.
Many thanks to Dr. Hussein Abdul-Latif for shedding some light on issues related to transgender care and the potential detrimental impacts of recent legislation across the country. As a physician and a professor, he doesn't have a lot of free time, so I appreciate him sharing some of it with me. If you like the episode, please be sure to like it in all the usual podcast spots and reviews. I appreciate it. And become a member if you're not already. You just need to create a username and password, and you can comment on all the posts. The music on the episode was taken from the DeLines album, The Sea Drift. Our Social Landscape is a listener-supported blog and podcast, so consider making a one-time donation or recurring monthly donation by clicking on the yellow Donate button on the homepage. Send any questions or comments to me otherwise at jr at oursociallandscape.com. I thank you for listening. <laughs>